Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 12 and verses 13 to 17 this morning. Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And actually, before I read, look at the very bottom, the very last verse, verse 17. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I'm just I'm telling you this ahead of time because I'm not going to read it with our text. Because it belongs with next week's text, which starts, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So the sea goes with the sea. Okay? So I just didn't want you to think anything was wrong with me or I missed anything right, when I stopped before that final line in verse 17. Okay? So please then hear with me uh, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Thus far, is a reading of God's Word. To begin, or to start off this morning, direct your eyes, please, to verse 6 of chapter 12, where we read, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, all of that to say, what I want us to see is that just as we said last week, verses 7 to 12 were a narration of the defeat of the devil described for us in verses 1 to 6, that our text today, verses 13 to 17, are a more detailed description of the events of verse 6. And that's given away, I think, clearly by verse 14 of our text, where we have a woman who goes into the wilderness, right, to this place to be nourished for a, a time, time, and half a time, which is equivalent to the 1260 days of verse 6 when the woman goes into the wilderness to be nourished. But what we need to see is where in verse 6 we just very briefly are told that she runs into the wilderness to be nourished. In our text today, It is expanded upon. Why? And that is because she is fleeing from the pursuit of the dragon who in verse 9 was identified to us as the devil. And so what we read in our text today is really a sequel. It's a sequel to the first battle between Christ and the devil. And because the devil could not devour the male child as he wanted to, he now has turned his attention to the woman and to her offspring. Because as we read at the end of verse 12, 
He knows His time is short. Now, we have to understand this one thing, and I don't want to belabor this point, but it's important in our interpretation. Not only in the book of Revelation, but also as we read all sorts of uh, prophetic texts, especially ones that deal with the language of, of time. Because words like soon and short and near and last days and last hour are oftentimes used to describe the, the timing of events. And the way that you interpret a particular passage can oftentimes be influenced by how you understand those time references. And I think Scripture, though, tells us how we are to understand those time references with respect to prophetic events. In fact, Peter himself deals with this in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so I'd ask for all of us to turn in our Bibles together to 2 Peter chapter 3 so we can see this together. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Here's what Peter says. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here we see immediately a few things. First, we see that Peter identifies the age that he is living in as the last days. The New Testament age, the age of the church. In the last days, there will be scoffers. And he's telling them because they're going to be the ones dealing with the scoffers. Right? So the, he identifies the New Testament age, the church age, as the last days, which is in agreement with the author to the Hebrews, isn't it? If you remember in the 
opening verses of, of Hebrews chapter 1, what are we told? Long ago, and in many ways and in many times, God has revealed things to the fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He reveals them to us through the Son. And so we see that the author of the Hebrews and, and, Paul, and uh, Peter excuse me, are in agreement that we are now in the last days. The last days commence with the first coming of Christ and they will conclude with the return of Christ. Okay? Now, what is the, the content of the matter here? What is Peter, though, writing about in chapter 3? He's writing about the day of the Lord, isn't he? He's writing about the return of Christ, His second coming. And immediately, what does Peter do? He puts them all on alert. He says, beware of the heirs of the scoffers. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to teach them to be constantly living, conscious of the fact that they are in the last days. That's why he's telling them that. No matter what anyone else will say. And these scoffers, they know the Word of God. They've heard the Word of God. This is why they say what? Where is the promise of His coming? Right? They deny that He is coming in judgment. They deny that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Now, brothers and sisters, why do we think that is? Why would they be saying this to believers? Because many first century believers believe what? That Christ would return imminently in their own lifetimes. This is why we see throughout the New Testament many times, they ask similar questions about the return of Christ because they think that He is coming in their own lifetime. And so no wonder why the scoffers take that belief and then use it to attack their faith, seeing that Christ has not yet returned. Oh, the day of the Lord is drawing near, huh? It doesn't seem very near. Where is He? Where is the promise of His coming, Christian? What does Peter, though, go on to say here in chapter 3? They conveniently forget right, that the God who created all things by His Word and brought about the flood by His Word, likewise, by His Word, is promised that Christ will return again to judge all things, and so we can be sure that He will. And then he goes on, though, in verses 8 and 9, to now address, though, the issue of time. And here is the heir of the scoffers that Peter does not want the Christians likewise to make. And that heir is this that was looking at things, and here what, we, what we're discussing is the return of Christ, looking at things from the time frame or the perspective of man. Right? That's the air the scoffers were making. Because God, he's saying, regards time from a different perspective than you and I. That's Peter's point. He says, God views all things from the perspective of eternity. And this man cannot begin to comprehend. That's what he's saying. And he's getting at this in relation to the day of judgment. The return of Christ. And so he's answering the question, why does God delay the return of Christ? Why has He not come? He says, He is coming soon, shortly. The day is near, and yet He is not here. And so Peter's answering the question, so that these believers will not be influenced by the scoffers who are in air about the language of Scripture. 
about when Christ will return. Right? Peter's saying to them, don't be duped into doubting or questioning the promise of God, for God does not view time like you and I. And this is such an important point that he prefaces it with what? That statement, do not overlook this fact. Right? He's, he's highlighting it in red for you. This is important. Do not overlook this fact. The scoffers do, which is why they are in error. And brothers and sisters, we likewise cannot overlook this fact as we are reading through the book of Revelation. In addition, think of this. Is not all time, relatively speaking, a short time in comparison to eternity? So whether it's a day, a month, or a million years, that time is short in comparison to eternity, isn't it? And so we cannot look at time from man's perspective when addressing prophetic events. Let me provide one further example just to drive home my point here. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Speaking about that final eschatological victory, Paul says this, The God of peace will soon, here's that word, soon, crush Satan under your feet. Two thousand years have gone by and the church still awaits the eschatological victory of Christ in the final crushing of Satan. But Paul can say it will happen soon because from God's perspective, it surely shall. And relative to eternity, it will happen soon. And so all of this I want us to keep in our minds as we are reading through the book of Revelation, as we read these time-bound references, so that when we read at the end of verse 12 that Satan's time is short, we do not understand it in relationship to our understanding of time. As if he's coming in a day or a month or maybe even a couple of years. But with respect to how the eternal God views time. Now with that in mind, I think the picture starts to come into a more clear view for us. As I took a shower this morning, the the mirror fogged up. And as you look at yourself in the mirror, it's foggy. You don't see yourself very well, right? And then you take a towel and you know do one of these to the mirror. You wipe it dry. And all of a sudden, what happens? The, The picture becomes clear. When we understand this, I think the picture for us ought to be becoming more clear and clear. We see for 42 months the nations are going to trample the holy city. We see for 1260 days the two witnesses who represent the church are going to proclaim the word until they are done in Christ's returns. During those 1260 days, chapter 12, verse 6, The woman is going to be nourished in the wilderness. For a time, time, and half a time, 3.5 years or 1260 days in verse 14, she's going to be nourished in the wilderness. So that what I want us to see is that this time, this short time that Satan has, is equivalent to those time periods. While the church is being trampled, while the gospel proclamation goes out, 
And while the church is being protected by God, it's Satan's time right now to attack the church and do so until Christ returns. All of this is happening in the church age during these last days. This is all that is going on. What we need to see in our text today is really the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20. That is what is being depicted for us in our text today. So that now our present passage, though, magnifies the battle that was and is and will continue to transpire on earth during these last days until He who was caught up to God and sits upon the throne returns to restore all things. And so as this battle takes place over the course of the church age, our text reveals to us, or answers for us, three questions. It answers a a, 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 a why, a how, and a what, really. It answers a why, a how, and a what. Right? Why, over the, the course of the church age, why during these last days does the devil pursue the woman? That's our first point. That's the first question that we have answered here. And point number two, then, how, over the course of these last days, Is the devil seeking to destroy her? And how does the devil seek to destroy her? And then the third question that is answered is, what will become of the woman and her offspring? What will become of the woman and her offspring? And so first, why the the devil pursues the woman? Well, it's very clear why the devil pursues the woman, isn't it? It's because of her identification with Christ. That is why she's being pursued. We see that immediately in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Why? Because she had, been, she had given birth to the male child. He pursues her because of her identification with Christ. In verse 17, likewise, we're told the same thing. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On who? On those who keep the commandments of God. And hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he pursues her. He attacks her. He seeks to destroy her because of her identification with Christ. And we've seen this already in the book of Revelation, haven't we? Uh, In the early chapters of this book, in the seven letters to the seven churches, what do we read? To the church in Smyrna. Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give to you the crown of life. Why are they in prison? Why are they being tested? Why is He telling them to be faithful? Because they are suffering on account of Christ. Because of their identification with Christ. That is the only reason that they are suffering. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus says this, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What are they being praised for? Why is God commending them? He commends them for not denying His name in the midst of persecution and even death. It was because of their identification with Christ 
that the church has suffered such agonies from the world and from the devil. We've all probably heard of or know of some instance where one person who is angry with another person will attack someone closely associated with the one whom they are angry with. And why do they do that? Not because they have any real beef with this person, right? But because they can't get to the one whom they hate. And so they attack someone who is closely associated with them or, or someone that they love. Brothers and sisters, this is what is going on in the world right now in this great battle that is ensuing. Right? The devil wants to get to Jesus, but because he cannot get to Jesus, he attacks those who are identified with him, who are closely associated with him. He attacks those whom Jesus loves. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you because of your identification with Christ. We see something similar in, in Saul's Damascus Road experience, don't we? Right After the stoning of Stephen and the imprisonment of Christians, right as the Lord confronts Saul on that road, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what does Saul say back to him? Who are you? And his response to him is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, the Christians in the first century and the Christians in the 21st century aren't persecuted by the devil because of your politics or uh, because of the way you dress or because... Uh, uh, of anything else other than the fact that you are closely associated with and identified with Christ. Uh, there is a recent example of this in the news. A week or two ago, I was, I was reading a story in Yahoo. And there's a, a well-known Christian actress who left uh, one network to go to another network. And when she was asked why she did that, her response was because she was interested in making uh, films, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, uh, that showed forth kind of traditional families. Right? That, is, that is what she wanted to do, and she was just lambasted for it. You know, all these people came out of the cracks and called her all sorts of names. She probably is going to lose out on career opportunities as well as, as, as monies that could be made. All because why though? Because she was obedient to Christ. Right? That is why she suffers. Because of her obedience to Christ. Right? She wasn't willing to be somewhere. They wanted to normalize homosexual marriage and so she left. Right? To, to support and to, and to exalt the traditional marriage in which God has instituted and she's persecuted for it. Right? But she's simply doing what Jesus said. Right? right? Jesus said, I believe it was Matthew 19, to the, to the Pharisees, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so the enemy hates Christ. And so because he hates Christ, he hates all who love Christ and who uh, express the words of Christ. But even more, he, he hates those who not only proclaim and testify to Christ, but those who obey Christ. Right? He hates those who especially obey Christ. 
Now, remember who the woman is again. Uh, We said that the woman is the entire covenant community of Old Testament and New Testament saints. And what we have seen is that the devil, right, throughout history has tried to destroy this covenant community. He has tried to destroy this visible institution. But now, twice thwarted, right, the devil twice thwarted by the, the male child and now by the woman has sought to turn his attention and his focus right, to individual believers, the offspring of the woman, in order that he might persecute them and destroy them. And so seeing this, though, brothers and sisters, right, seeing the, the reason why the devil goes to make war with you and assault you, right, when he does, it ought to be held as a, as a badge of honor amongst believers, shouldn't it? Right, when the devil assails you, you ought to be proud of that. You ought to look at that as, 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 a, as a good thing. Why? Because the devil only assails and attacks those who obey the commandments of God and who hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Which also means if you live a really easy life and you have no struggles, no temptations, no anything, now is the time to question, am I obeying the commandments of God in every sphere of life? Right? Am I holding to the testimony of of Jesus in every sphere of life? Perhaps not. Let this further then serve also as a reminder to us of why we are not to be like the world. Especially the children. Right? The young people. Oftentimes you you look at the world with admiration and jealousy. Right? You see the world, you see other children, you say, I want to have that. I want to be like that. But let us see from our text. Right? We are not to look upon the world with admiration and with jealousy. Why? Because you have been chosen out of the world if you are a believer. Right? You have been chosen as a choice possession of the Lord and you have been called to live as such in the world. And we live as such by following the example of Christ Right? Not serving the world. Not serving the devil. But serving God by obeying His commandments, which comes out of, it springs forth out of a lively and robust faith in the Son. A faith that is not hid, nor held timidly. A faith that is not hid, nor held timidly. The world will not persecute you if it sees you as one of its own. And there are many people who call themselves Christians who know this, who understand this. And so they hide their Christianity. Or they hold on to it very timidly, very quietly, and only profess it when it's popular to do so. Right? They want to blend in with the world. They want to camouflage themselves with their unbelieving co-workers and unbelieving neighbors and unbelieving friends. But let us see, brothers and sisters, that that's a, a slap in the face to the one who bore your sins upon the cross. It's a slap in the face to the one who suffered the torments of hell on your behalf. Let us think of that. Every time the world and the devil assail you and you want to throw in the towel and give up and compromise with the world because the heat has become too hot for you. Let us remember that. The devil is going to employ this whole world against you. The government, your employers, all sorts of people. He will employ 
against you so that you will want to quit. But brothers and sisters, we are to persevere, to continue obeying and testifying to Christ because we know that Christ has already won. This is a beautiful thing that we see time and time again in the book of Revelation. Before Christ tells us how bad it's going to be, He first tells us how He has conquered and won. He did that last week. Satan's thrown down. He can no longer accuse you because of Christ's decisive victory on earth. But now the devil is going to come in wrath against you. But have no fear, for Christ has already won. Christ has already won. And so knowing this, brothers and sisters, we must be willing not only to say the easy things about Jesus to the world, but also to say the hard things. Right? Not only to obey the easy commandments to obey, but likewise obey those also ones that we find hard in the world. For this is why you've been saved by the grace of God. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Furthermore, then, we are told how the devil, though, will express this great wrath. Right? How he will make war on the saints. We are told in our text today the method of his madness. That leads us to our second point, which is how the devil seeks to destroy God's people. How the devil seeks to destroy God's people. Look with me, please, at verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now I want us to see that immediately we're given a clue how he seeks to express that wrath and pursue and make war on the saints and destroy God's people simply by the name that is given to the devil. What's the name given to him here? A serpent. Why is he called the serpent? Because he wants us to immediately think back to the Garden of Eden. And what happened in the Garden of Eden? Our first parents were what? Deceived by the devil. Right? Deceived by his words. Made to wander away from God through deceit, through his lies. And that is the same way Satan operates today. And here in verse 15, then the, the devil's persecution of God's people is represented by the picture of this serpent casting water from his mouth in order to sweep away the woman with the flood. Now, be careful. Remember that with all of John's metaphors concerning things coming out of people's mouths and weapons coming out of people's mouths, it is all figurative language. Right? So that here we are to see this too as, as figurative language. I mean, think about for one example, Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. There, uh, Jesus has John pen a letter to the church in Laodicea, rebuking them. And what does He say to them? Because you are lukewarm, because you are neither hot nor cold, I what? Spit you out of My mouth. Is He literally going to spit them out of His mouth? Is He talking about a literal mouth? No. Right? It's figurative language used as a threat of judgment against these compromisers in the church. But just as Jesus says that He's going to spit compromisers out from His mouth as a threat of judgment, we see the devil in our text do the very opposite thing, don't we? 
What does he use his mouth for? And he pours water like a river out to do what? To sweep God's true people away into the flood. Here, what this imagery then conveys to us is the devil's persecution of God's people with deception. He persecutes God's people with deception, with lies. Let's further unpack this together. Look with me at Psalm 144. We'll look at verses 7 and 8. Psalm 144, verses 7 and 8. Keeping verse 15 in the background. Here we read this. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. From the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. This is just one of many examples, but it shows that floodwaters represent persecution. And in conjunction with the mouth, persecution through lies and through deceit. This is exactly what Satan constantly is attempting to do. We've seen this back in chapter 2. Uh, with the church in Pergamum. It was the Nicolaitans, wasn't it, who brought about false teaching in the church to deceive the church with what? Lies. It was later in in the church in uh, Thyatira that we read about Jezebel. What was she trying to do within the people of God? Deceive them with what? Lies. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Right? All lies that are used against God's people to draw them away from Christ. Right? Satan's persecution and deception are going to be brought out all the more in the work of the beast and in his agents that we're going to read about in the following chapters. But this is Satan's goal, to draw you away from Christ and into sin. And he does it through deception. And he's crafty, isn't he, with it? He's, he's very cunning. He presents that which is vile and wicked as something beautiful. And he causes us, even believers sometimes, right, to, to view it as beautiful, at least for a time. Satan's work, in many ways, is like the work of an exterminator. And I should know, because I used to be an exterminator. And what does an exterminator do? He looks to bait, right, Mice and, and rats in. So he might capture them and kill them. Right? And he does that. Not with disgusting, gross things, so that the, the mouse sees it and goes, I don't want to go anywhere near that trap, right? No, they, they spruce up the little death traps, don't they? Right? To make them look like palaces, so that when they see this thing that looks good to their eyes, they go after it, and boom, the trap snaps and kills them. Right? This is what Satan is trying to do to, to Christians, to believers. He is like the fisherman who puts the worm on the hook and puts it in the water and dangles it before the fish so that they would come up and wrap their mouths around it so he might draw them out of the waters. Right? Satan likewise does this very same thing. Right? He, he uses the hook and he dangles something beautiful before our eyes in order that he might draw us away from Christ. That is what Satan is trying to do. 
He wants to make things appear good to you before your eyes. He presents things as as delightful to you before your ears. In many churches, he makes heresy sound orthodox. In many churches, he makes intelligent, uh, well-spoken men who stand up in the pulpit and proclaim God's Word seem believable, even though they might be wolves in sheep's clothing who have been placed there in the church to delude and to deceive God's flock. Think about it. The entire New Testament, all of Paul's letters contained within them is a constant refutation of what? False teachers and false doctrine. All that are meant to to lead and carry God's people away and to destroy their soul. This alarm is constantly being sounded, isn't it? The bell constantly being rung. The, The drum constantly being beaten. Why? Because this is Satan's chief weapon against God's people. It is deception through lies. The deceitfulness of sin as he tries to draw you away, which is why the author to the Hebrews says this. In chapter 3, verse 13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This world is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why they can call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. But this, brothers and sisters, is why we must not toy with sin in the least. We must not play with sin. Right? We must abhor evil. That which God in His Word says is evil. And we must cling to that which is good. That which God in His Word says is good. This is why we also then must take seriously Paul's call to Timothy. In chapter, excuse me, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, where he says this to Timothy. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Not just against unbelievers either, but against believers as well. Oftentimes you'll hear Christians say, you know, why is this group going after this group over this doctrine? They're all good brothers. They're all preaching the gospel. Why would they do that? Why would they stand up and, and call out these men? Because they're teaching air. And maintaining the truth over and against air. As long as we're doing it with gentleness and charity and kindness is far more important than worrying about someone's feelings getting hurt because they're teaching air in the church. But not only does Satan look to deceive us within the church He seeks to deceive us within the world in all spheres of our life. He seeks to deceive us through lies in school by telling us that we have evolved from animals. He looks to deceive us in politics by telling us that true peace and happiness will only come through the government. He looks to deceive us through earthly philosophies. And make sure you hear I said earthly philosophies. Philosophy is an evil. Earthly philosophies are those that seek to answer the question of existence and reality and of being apart from God and His Word. 
This is why though you have so many so-called Christians going off to college, coming home atheists and agnostics, because they have been swept away by the floodwaters of the devil. Right? They've been caught up in the lies and the deceit that they have learned out in the world. But then what is to become of the church? If the devil is out there in great wrath, pursuing and looking to destroy the church, how can we know that we will make it to the end? Well, this leads us to our third and our final point this morning, which is what will become of the woman and her offspring? What will become of the woman and her offspring? And there are really two verses that tell us, although figuratively, they figuratively tell us. First, verse 14. Look with me there, please. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, time, and half a time. Here we see a few things. First, an allusion back to Daniel, right? The book of Daniel and that period of tribulation. Uh, that it was described by the three and a half years, again, now applied to the entire church age. And as that persecution ensues during the church age, what do we see here first depicted for us? God is our protection in the wilderness, just as God was Israel's protection in the wilderness. You say, well, how do you see that? Well, one of the places to look at is Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. This is what we read there. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Another text, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 to 12. We see much the same imagery here. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 10. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with them. What do we read throughout the book of Psalms? Isn't David continually crying out that God would shield him with his wings? Right? And shelter him from his every enemy? In Psalm 55, David says in response to the oppression of the wicked, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. With it, then we also need to look at Isaiah chapter 40. Look with me there, Isaiah chapter 40. Here it predicts that in the future, Israel will mount up on eagles' wings in the process of returning through the wilderness. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 29. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 29.
Isaiah 40, verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All of that to say this. What we need to take from verse 14 is that what we are being taught is that although the devil is pursuing us, although he is seeking to destroy the people of God, God will strengthen and God will nourish and God will protect His church as the devil pursues in our exodus wanderings through the wilderness of this world. That is what is being taught to us in verse 14. And just as Israel in the Old Testament was fed with the manna that came down from the heaven, today, brothers and sisters, you and I are are fed with the true heavenly manna who is Christ who Christ Himself now feeds us and nourishes us and protects us through every flood and provides for us strength and comfort and peace and a place of refuge from the pursuit of the devil. Also in verse 16, and the earth swallowing up its enemies. This too is an allusion to the very same thing. Look at me. Look with me at verse 16, please. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. This is an allusion to two things. First is the Red Sea, and the swallowing up of the Egyptians who pursued the Israelites. How do we know this? Think back to Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses. In verse 12, what does he say? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. The second allusion is back to Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion, you can read about this, we don't have time, but Numbers chapter 16. And in Korah's rebellion, what we're told is that Korah and his allies are swallowed up by the earth. Why? Because they opposed Moses, who the Lord had put in place to lead the Israelites and because they opposed God's Word and wanting to lead the Israelites back to Egypt. And so we're told they are swallowed up by the earth. right? But in both instances, what we need to see is that God protected His people against those who set themselves up against them. And so what we need to see both in verses 14 and in verse 16 is God's promise of deliverance to His people. That although the devil will pursue you, God will deliver His people from the devil. Ultimately, carrying us through to the holy place, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we draw to a close in this morning, brothers and sisters, I want us to see though how important it is to be identified with Christ. How vitally important it is to be united to Christ by faith. To be united with Him in His life and in His death and in His burial and in His resurrection and in His ascension. So you can say that Christ died for my sins and that Christ was raised 
for my justification. See how important it is to be represented by Christ. Christ is the representative head of His church. It is only them that He represents when He covenanted with His Father. It is only them that He represented in His suffering and His death. It is only they who are represented by Christ before the Father who then receive the the blessings and the benefits of His death and of His resurrection. It is only those, brothers and sisters, who are united to Christ by faith that can say that not only right now is Christ for us, but we can say that Christ is with us, fighting this battle with and for His people. And it is only those represented by Christ who will ultimately appear with Him in glory when this age ends. And so the question ultimately is, at the end of the day, are you united to Christ by faith? Do you participate in the blessings of the covenant of grace? If you do not, if the answer is no, how terrible that is for you are on your own in this world that we have just described. But for those of you who have been united to Christ by faith, for those of you who do participate in the sweet blessings of the covenant of grace, let us pray this day for the Lord's help in this battle against the devil. And that He would help also to daily remind us that it's those who keep the commandments of God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus that will be protected. And so I call upon us all to embrace the cross. right? Embrace all that comes with it, knowing that the devil's time is short. But our celebration in victory with Christ in glory will last forever. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us to embrace the cross and all that that means. Whether that's denying ourselves, right? Dying to the world, putting off sin, right? Putting on Christ each and every day, Lord. We ask that you would help us and that you would strengthen us to do so. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, convert those here today, both young and old, who have not been united to Christ by faith, for we know that this is a a gift from God. This is a a grace from above. And so, Lord, we, we plead before Your throne of grace this morning, if it be Thy will, to use the Gospel to change the hearts of sinners this day, for we see the terrible ends of all of those who are not identified with Christ. And yet, Father, we thank You, for You are the reason that we are represented by Christ. Uh, You are the reason that we are now identified with Him. Lord, cause us not to be ashamed of Christ, but to, to boldly testify to His name and to unashamedly follow after and keep the commandments of God in this world no matter the cost. And so, Father, we come before You this morning asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.